When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. It's Stangy Law Firm. We represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri. Why is young Jack Renault under suspicion for murdering his father? Agatha Christie, today on the Classic Tales podcast. Charlie, old Saint Welcome to the Classic Tales podcast. Thank you for listening. The Classic Tales podcast is listener supported. If you enjoy listening to the Classic Tales, please become a supporting member. It helps support the podcast and it's a great way to build out your library of classics. By making a monthly donation of just $5, you'll receive a corresponding thank you code for an $8 discount off any audiobook order. Donate $10 a month or more, and you get a $17 discount. You win, and we get to keep going strong. Go now to ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com and become a member today. We'd like to thank Spotify for being a partnering sponsor. Time is about up if you'd like some Classic Tales merchandise for Christmas. If you'd like an erudite troglodyte hoodie, or a Pride and Prejudice tote bag, or a something new mug, there are only a couple of days left to have them in time for Christmas. Follow the link in the show's description. App users can still find bite-sized portions of the Meditations of Marcus Aurelius in their special features. Finally, I'd like to talk about a new project. So, I'm in high school, and I'm not a great reader. And for some reason I took AP History, so I'm in my AP History class, and I had to read The Scarlet Letter. It was arguably the worst experience I'd had with a book up to that moment. I was so lost and frustrated, and I was trying so hard... I wanted to read the classics so badly. I could tell there was something amazing there that was just hidden from me, and I couldn't get to it. So fast forward ten years or so, and I discover audiobooks. It was literally life-changing. Suddenly the whole world of the classics is open to me, and I can enjoy The Three Musketeers, David Copperfield, Jane Eyre, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, all of these stories I had always wanted to read, I could now enjoy with a little help from a narrator. I want other kids who might be struggling like that to have the same experience. So that's why I'm working on an initiative to make my library of classic tales free for all public schools. It's a tricky plan, but I really don't want other kids to struggle like I did. If they can have ready access to these productions, I think it would go a long way to helping them. But I need your help. Please become a supporting member or purchase one of our larger one-time support options. If you can't do that, please leave us a review or tell your friends about us. I want to make this free for kids and schools with limited resources. So anything you can do to help us grow and sustain ourselves will help us put the classics into the ears of the next generation. Thank you.
really quickly, here's our personal moment. The music for this and last week's episode, you're probably wondering, what's the deal? Maurice Chevalier is the, is the singer, well, talker, and here's where it's from. Apparently, in the 60s, the tire companies like Goodyear and Firestone would produce Christmas albums at Christmas time, and they would hire top-notch talent. And they would make these albums available only in the tire stores to get you to go in and buy one of them, and, and then you'd have to, you know, I want to get some snow tires. So that's, that's, that was a marketing ploy in the 60s. And my Ancilla's family has a collection of these Firestone Goodyear albums. These, these, we called them the Firestone albums. And they're great. They're really, really great. Some are better than others. But, um, this Maurice Chevalier song is one of our favorites. Uh, we, we always talk through it with him with an accent. You know, you got to do the whole thing. It's a lot of fun. But, uh, that's where this is from. This weird, obscure copy of Jolly Old St. Nicholas talked out by Maurice Chevalier. His Silent Night is very good, too. Also talked through. Anyway, that's our personal moment. Thank you very much. And now, The Murder on the Links, Part 5 of 7, by Agatha Christie. Now I think I'll leave to you what to give the rest. Choose for me, dear Santa Claus. You will know the best. Oh, yes, you will. Chapter 16, The Baraldi Case Some twenty years or so before the opening of the present story, Monsieur Arnold Baraldi, a native of Lyon, arrived in Paris, accompanied by his pretty wife and their little daughter, a mere babe. Monsieur Baraldi was a junior partner in a firm of wine merchants, a stout, middle-aged man, fond of the good things in life, devoted to his charming wife, and altogether unremarkable in every way. The firm in which Monsieur Baraldi was a partner was a small one, and although doing well, it did not yield a large income to the junior partner. The Baraldis had a small apartment and lived in a very modest fashion to begin with. But unremarkable though Monsieur Baraldi might be, his wife, was plentifully gilded with the brush of romance. Young and good-looking, and gifted withal with a singular charm of manner, Madame Baraldi at once created a stir in the quarter, especially when it began to be whispered that some interesting mystery surrounded her birth. It was rumoured that she was the illegitimate daughter of a Russian Grand Duke. Others asserted that it was an Austrian Archduke, that the union was legal, though more gnatic. But all stories agreed upon one point, that Jean Baraldi was the centre of an interesting mystery. Questioned by the curious, Madame Baraldi did not deny these rumours. On the other hand, she let it be clearly understood that though her lips were sealed, all these stories had a foundation in fact. To intimate friends she unburdened herself further, spoke of political intrigues, of papers, of obscure dangers that threatened her. There was also much talk of crown jewels that were to be sold secretly, with herself acting as the go-between. Amongst the friends and acquaintances of the Baraldis was a young lawyer, Georges Cornell. It was soon evident that the fascinating Jean 
had completely enslaved his heart. Madame Brawley encouraged the young man in a discreet fashion, but being always careful to affirm her complete devotion to her middle-aged husband. Nevertheless, many spiteful persons did not hesitate to declare that young Cornell was her lover, and not the only one. When the Baraldis had been in Paris about three months, another personage came upon the scene. This was Mr. Hiram P. Trapp, a native of the United States, and extremely wealthy. Introduced to the charming and mysterious Madame Baraldi, he fell a prompt victim to her fascinations. His admiration was obvious, though strictly respectful. About this time Madame Baraldi became more outspoken in her confidences. To several friends, she declared herself greatly worried on her husband's behalf. She explained that he had been drawn into several schemes of a political nature— and also referred to some important papers that had been entrusted to him for safekeeping, and which concerned a secret of far-reaching European importance. They had been entrusted to his custody to throw pursuers off the track, but Madame Baraldi was nervous, having recognized several important members of the revolutionary circle in Paris. On the twenty-eighth day of November the blow fell. The woman who came daily to clean and cook for the Baraldis was surprised to find the door of the apartment standing wide open. Hearing faint moans issuing from the bedroom, she went in. A terrible sight met her eyes. Madame Baraldi lay on the floor, bound hand and foot, uttering feeble moans, having managed to free her mouth from a gag. On the bed was Monsieur Baraldi, lying in a pool of blood, with a knife driven through his heart. Madame Baraldi's story was clear enough. Suddenly awakened from sleep, she had discerned two masked men bending over her. Stifling her cries, they had bound and gagged her. They had then demanded of Monsieur Baraldi the famous secret. But the intrepid wine merchant refused point-blank to accede to their request. Angered by his refusal, one of the men incontinently stabbed him through the heart, with the man's dead keys they had opened the safe in the corner, and had carried away with them a mass of papers. Both men were heavily bearded, and had worn masks, but Madame Baraldi declared positively that they were Russians. The affair created an immense sensation. It was referred to variously as the Nihilist Atrocity, Revolutionaries in Paris, and the Russian Mystery. Time went on, and the mysterious bearded men were never traced. And then, just as public interest was beginning to die down, a startling development occurred. Madame Baraldi was arrested and charged with the murder of her husband. The trial, when it came on, aroused widespread interest. The youth and beauty of the accused, and her mysterious history, were sufficient to make it a cause célèbre. People ranged themselves wildly for or against the prisoner, but her partisans received several severe checks to their enthusiasm. The romantic past of Madame Baraldi, her royal blood, and the mysterious intrigues in which she had her being, were shown to be mere fantasies of the imagination. It was proved beyond doubt that Jean Baraldi's parents were a highly respectable and prosaic couple, fruit merchants, who lived on the outskirts of Lyon. The Russian Grand Duke, the court intrigues and the political schemes, all the stories current were traced back to the lady herself. 
From her brain had emanated these ingenious myths, and she was proved to have raised a considerable sum of money from various credulous persons by her fiction of the crown jewels, the jewels in question being found to be mere paste imitations. Remorselessly, the whole story of her life was laid bare. The motive for the murder was found in Mr. Hiram P. Trapp. Mr. Trapp did his best, but relentlessly and agilely cross-questioned, he was forced to admit that he loved the lady, and that had she been free, he would have asked her to be his wife. The fact that the relations between them were admittedly platonic strengthened the case against the accused. Debarred from becoming his mistress by the simple honourable nature of the man, Jean Baraldi had conceived the monstrous project of ridding herself of her elderly, undistinguished husband, and becoming the wife of the rich American. Throughout, Madame Baraldi confronted her accusers with complete sang-froid and self-possession. Her story never varied. She continued to declare strenuously that she was of royal birth and that she had been substituted for the daughter of the fruit-seller at an early age. Absurd and completely unsubstantiated as these statements were, a great number of people believed implicitly in their truth. But the prosecution was implacable. It denounced the masked Russians as a myth, and asserted that the crime had been committed by Madame Baraldi and her lover, Georges Cornell. A warrant was issued for the arrest of the latter, but he had wisely disappeared. Evidence showed that the bonds which secured Madame Baraldi were so loose that she could easily have freed herself. And then, towards the close of the trial, a letter, posted in Paris, was sent to the public prosecutor. It was from Georges Corneau, and, without revealing his whereabouts, it contained a full confession of the crime. He declared that he had indeed struck the fatal blow at Madame Baraldi's instigation. The crime had been planned between them. Believing that her husband ill-treated her, and maddened by his own passion for her, a passion which he believed her to return, he had planned the crime and struck the fatal blow that should free the woman he loved from a hateful bondage. Now, for the first time, he learnt of Mr. Hiram P. Trapp, and realised that the woman he loved had betrayed him. Not for his sake did she wish to be free, but in order to marry the wealthy American. She had used him as a cat's paw, and now, in his jealous rage, he turned and denounced her, declaring that throughout he had acted at her instigation. And then Madame Baraldi proved herself the remarkable woman she undoubtedly was. Without hesitation, she dropped her previous defence, and admitted that the Russians were a pure invention on her part. The real murderer was Georges Conneau. Maddened by passion, he had committed the crime, vowing that if she did not keep silence, he would enact a terrible vengeance from her. Terrified by his threats, she had consented, also fearing it likely that if she told the truth, she might be accused of conniving at the crime. But she had steadfastly refused to have anything more to do with her husband's murderer, and it was in revenge for this attitude on her part that he had written this letter accusing her. She swore solemnly that she had had nothing to do with the planning of the crime, that she had awoke on that memorable night to find Georges Conneau standing over her, the blood-stained knife in his hand. It was a touch-and-go affair. 
Madame Baraldi's story was hardly credible. But this woman, whose fairy tales of royal intrigues had been so easily accepted, had the supreme art of making herself believed. The address to the jury was a masterpiece. The tears streaming down her face, she spoke of her child, of her woman's honour, of her desire to keep her reputation untarnished for the child's sake. She admitted that, Georges Conneau having been her lover, she might perhaps be held morally responsible for the crime, but before God nothing more. She knew that she had committed a grave fault in not denouncing Conneau to the law, but she declared in a broken voice that that was a thing no woman could have done. She had loved him. Could she let her hand be the one to send him to the guillotine? She had been guilty of much, but she was innocent of the terrible crime imputed to her. However that may have been, her eloquence and personality won the day. Madame Baraldi, amidst a scene of unparalleled excitement, was acquitted. Despite the utmost endeavours of the police, Georges Conneau was never traced. As for Madame Baraldi, nothing more was heard of her. Taking the child with her, she left Paris to begin a new life. Chapter 17 We Make Further Investigations I have set down the Baraldi case in full. Of course, all the details did not present themselves to my memory as I have recounted them here. Nevertheless, I recalled the case fairly accurately. It had attracted a great deal of interest at the time, and had been fully reported by the English papers, so that it did not need much effort of memory on my part to recollect the salient details. Just for the moment, in my excitement, it seemed to clear up the whole matter. I admit that I am impulsive, and Poirot deplores my custom of jumping to conclusions, but I think I had some excuse in this instance. The remarkable way in which this discovery justified Poirot's point of view struck me at once. Poirot, I said, I congratulate you. I see everything now. If that is indeed the truth, I congratulate you, mon ami. For as a rule, you are not famous for seeing, eh? Is it not so? I felt a little annoyed. Come now, don't rub it in. You've been so confoundedly mysterious all along with your hints and your insignificant details that any one might fail to see what you were driving at. Poirot lit one of his little cigarettes with his usual precision. Then he looked up. And since you see everything now, mon ami, what exactly is it that you see? Why, that it was Madame de Bray. Peraldi, who murdered Mr. Renault. The similarity of the two cases proves that beyond a doubt. Then you consider that Madame Beraldi was wrongly acquitted? That in actual fact she was guilty of connivance in her husband's murder? I opened my eyes wide. But of course, don't you? Poirot walked to the end of the room, absent-mindedly straightened a chair, and then said thoughtfully, Yes. That is my opinion. But there is no of course about it, my friend. Technically speaking, Madame Beraldi is innocent. Of that crime, perhaps, but not of this. Poirot sat down again and regarded me, his thoughtful air more marked than ever. So it is definitely your opinion, Hastings, that Madame de Bray murdered Monsieur Renaud? Yes. Why? 
he shot the question at me with such suddenness that I was taken aback. Why, I stammered. Why? Oh, because... I came to a stop. Poirot nodded his head at me. You see, you come to a stumbling block at once. Why should Madame Dubray, I shall call her that for clearness sake, murder Monsieur Renaud? We can find no shadow of a motive. She does not benefit by his death. Considered as either mistress or blackmailer, she stands to lose. You cannot have a murder without a motive. The first crime was different. There we had a rich lover waiting to step into her husband's shoes. Money is not the only motive for murder, I objected. True, agreed Poirot placidly. There are two others. The crime passionnel is one, and there is the third rare motive. Murder for an idea which implies some form of mental derangement on the part of the murderer. Homicidal mania and religious fanaticism belong to that class. We can rule it out here. But what about the crime passionnel? Can you rule that out? If Madame de Bray was Renaud's mistress, if she found that his affection was cooling, or if her jealousy was aroused in any way, might she not have struck him down in a moment of anger? Poirot shook his head. If, I say if, you not, Madame de Bray was Renaud's mistress, he had not had time to tire of her. And in any case, you mistake her character. She is a woman who can simulate great emotional stress. She is a magnificent actress. But looked at dispassionately, her life disproves her appearance. Throughout, if we examine it, she has been cold-blooded and calculating in her motives and actions. It was not to link her life with that of her young lover that she connived at her husband's murder. The rich American, for whom she probably did not carry a button, was her objective. If she committed a crime, she would always do so for gain. Here, there was no gain. Besides, how do you account for the digging of the grave? That was a man's work. She might have had an accomplice, I suggested, unwilling to relinquish my belief. I pass to another objection. You have spoken of the similarity between the two crimes. Wherein does that lie, my friend? I stared at him in astonishment. My Poirot, it was you who remarked on that. The story of the masked men, the secret, the papers. Poirot smiled a little. Do not be so indignant, I beg of you. I repudiate nothing. The similarities of the two stories links the two cases together inevitably. But reflect now on something very curious. It is not Madame de Bray who tells us this tale. If it were, all would indeed be plain sailing. It is Madame Renault. Is she then in league with the other? I can't believe that, I said slowly. If it is so, she must be the most consummate actress the world has ever known. Ta-ta-ta, said Poirot impatiently. Again, you have the sentiment and not the logic. If it is necessary for a criminal to be a consummate actress, then by all means assume her to be one. But is it necessary? I do not believe Madame Renaud to be in league with Madame de Bray for several reasons. 
some of which I have already enumerated to you. The others are self-evident. Therefore that possibility eliminated, we draw very near to the truth, which is, as always, very curious and interesting. Poirot, I cried, what more do you know? Mon ami, you must make your own deductions. You have access to the facts. Concentrate your grey cells. Reason, not like Giraud, but like Hercule Poirot. But are you sure? My friend, in many ways I have been an imbecile, but at last I see clearly. You know everything? I have discovered what Monsieur Renault sent for me to discover. And you know the murderer? I know one murderer. What do you mean? We talk a little at cross-purposes. There I hear not one crime but two. The first I have solved. The second, Abiel? I will confess I am not sure. But Poirot, I thought you said the man in the shed had died a natural death. Ta-ta-ta. Poirot made his favourite ejaculation of impatience. Still you do not understand. One may have a crime without a murderer, but for two crimes it is essential to have two bodies. His remark struck me as so peculiarly lacking in lucidity that I looked at him in some anxiety. But he appeared perfectly normal. Suddenly he rose and strolled to the window. Here he is, he observed. Who? Monsieur Jacques Renaud. I sent a note up to the villa to ask him to come here. That changed the course of my ideas, and I asked Poirot if he knew that Jacques Renault had been in Merlonville on the night of the crime. I had hoped to catch my astute little friend napping, but as usual he was omniscient. He too had inquired at the station. And without doubt we are not original in the idea, Hastings. The excellent Giraud, he also has probably made his inquiries. You don't think, I said and then stopped. Ah, oh, no! It would be too horrible! Poirot looked inquiringly at me, but I said no more. It had just occurred to me that, though there were seven women directly or indirectly connected with the case, Mrs. Renault, Madame de Bray and her daughter, the mysterious visitor, and the three servants, there was, with the exception of old Auguste, who could hardly count, only one man, Jack Renault and a man must have dug a grave. I had no time to develop further the appalling idea that had occurred to me, for Jack Renault was ushered into the room. Poirot greeted him in a business-like manner. Take a seat, monsieur. I regret infinitely to derange you, but you will perhaps understand that the atmosphere of the villa is not too congenial to me. Monsieur Giraud and I do not see eye to eye about everything. His politeness to me has not been striking, and you will comprehend that I do not intend any little discoveries I may make to benefit him in any way. Exactly, Monsieur Poirot, said the lad. That fellow Giraud is an ill-conditioned brute, and I'd be delighted to see someone score at his expense. Then may I ask a little favour of you? Certainly. I will ask you to go to the railway station— and take a train to the next station along the line, Abelac. Ask there, at the cloakroom, whether two foreigners deposited a valise there 
on the night of the murder. It is a small station, and they are almost certain to remember. Will you do this? Of course I will, said the boy, mystified, though ready for the task. I and my friend, you comprehend, have business elsewhere, explained Poirot. There is a train in a quarter of an hour, and I will ask you not to return to the villa, as I have no wish for Giraud to get an inkling of your errand. Very well. I will go straight to the station. He rose to his feet. Poirot's voice stopped him. One moment, Monsieur Renaud. There is one little matter that puzzles me. Why did you not mention to Monsieur Rotet this morning that you were in Merlonville on the night of the crime? Jack Renaud's face went crimson. With an effort, he controlled himself. You have made a mistake. I was in Cherbourg, as I told the examining magistrate this morning. Poirot looked at him, his eyes narrowed, cat-like, until they only showed a gleam of green. Then it is a singular mistake that I have made there, for it is shared by the station staff. They say you arrived by the 11.40 train. For a moment, Jack Renault hesitated, and he made up his mind. And if I did, I suppose you do not mean to accuse me of participating in my father's murder? He asked the question haughtily, his head thrown back. I should like an explanation of the reason that brought you here. That is simple enough. I came to see my fiancée, Mademoiselle Dubray. I was on the eve of a long voyage, uncertain as to when I should return. I wished to see her before I went, to assure her of my unchanging devotion. And you did see her? Poirot's eyes never left the other's face. There was an appreciable pause before Renaud replied. Then he said, Yes. And afterwards? I found I had missed the last train. I walked to Saint-Beauvais, where I knocked up a garage and got a car to take me back to Cherbourg. Saint-Beauvais? That is fifteen kilometres. A long walk, Monsieur Renaud. I... I felt like walking. Poirot bowed his head as a sign that he accepted the explanation. Jack Renaud took up his hat and cane and departed. In a trice, Poirot jumped to his feet. Quick, Hastings, we will go after him. Keeping a discreet distance behind our quarry, we followed him through the streets of Merlonville. But when Poirot saw that he took the turning to the station, he checked himself. All is well. He has taken the bait. He will go to Abalak and will inquire for the mythical valise left by the mythical foreigners. Yes, mon ami, all that was a little invention of my own. You wanted him out of the way, I exclaimed. Your penetration is amazing, Hastings. Now, if you please, we will go up to the Villa Genevieve. Chapter 18 Giraud Acts By the way, Poirot, I said as we walked along the hot white road, I've got a bone to pick with you. I dare say you meant well, but really it was no business of yours to go mooching round to the Hôtel de Fer without letting me know. Poirot shot a quick sidelong glance at me. How did you know I had been there? he inquired. Much to my annoyance, I felt the colour rising in my cheeks. 
I happened to look in in passing, I explained with as much dignity as I could muster. I rather feared Poirot's banter, but to my relief and somewhat to my surprise, he only shook his head with a rather unusual gravity. If I have offended your susceptibilities in any way, I demand pardon of you. You will understand better soon. But believe me, I have striven to concentrate all my energies on the case. Oh, it's all right, I said, mollified by the apology. I know it's only that you have my interests at heart, but I can take care of myself all right. Poirot seemed to be about to say something further, but checked himself. Arrived at the villa, Poirot led the way up to the shed where the second body had been discovered. He did not, however, go in, but paused by the bench, which I have mentioned before, as being set some few yards away from it. After contemplating it for a moment or two, he paced carefully from it to the hedge, which marked the boundary between the Villa Genevieve and the Villa Marguerite. Then he paced back again, nodding his head as he did so. Returning again to the hedge, he parted the bushes with his hands. "'With good fortune,' he remarked to me over his shoulder. "'Mademoiselle Martha may find herself in the garden. "'I desire to speak to her, and would prefer not to call formally at the Villa Marguerite. "'Ah, all is well. There she is. Psst, mademoiselle! Psst, un moment, s'il vous plaît!' "'I joined him at the moment that Martha Dubray, looking slightly startled, "'came running up to the hedge at his call.' "'A little word with you, mademoiselle, if it is permitted.' "'Certainly, monsieur Poirot.' "'Despite her acquiescence, her eyes looked troubled and afraid. "'Mademoiselle, do you remember running after me on the road "'the day I came to your house with the examining magistrate? "'You asked me if anyone was suspected of the crime. "'And you told me two Chileans.' "'Her voice sounded rather breathless.' and her left hand stole to her breast. "'Will you ask me the same question again, mademoiselle?' "'What do you mean?' "'This. "'If you were to ask me that question again, "'I should give you a different answer. "'Someone is suspected, but not a Chilean.' "'Who?' "'The word came faintly between her parted lips. "'Monsieur Jacques Renault.' "'What?' It was a cry. Jack! Impossible! Who dares to suspect him? Giraud. Giraud! The girl's face was ashy. I am afraid of that man. He is cruel. He will... He will... She broke off. There was courage gathering in her face. And determination. I realized in that moment that she was a fighter. Poirot, too, watched her intently. "'You know, of course, that he was here on the night of the murder?' he asked. "'Yes,' she replied mechanically. "'He told me. "'It was unwise to have tried to conceal the fact,' ventured Poirot. "'Yes, yes,' she replied impatiently. "'But we cannot waste time on regrets. "'We must find something to save him. "'He is innocent, of course, "'but that will not help him with a man like Giraud, "'who has his reputation to think of.' He must arrest someone, and that someone will be Jack. The facts will tell against him, said Poirot. You realize that? 
she faced him squarely, and used the words I had heard her say in her mother's drawing-room. I am not a child, monsieur. I can be brave and look facts in the face. He is innocent, and we must save him. She spoke with a kind of desperate energy, then was silent, frowning as she thought. Mademoiselle, said Poirot, observing her keenly, is there not something that you are keeping back, that you could tell us? She nodded perplexedly. Yes, there is something, but I hardly know whether you will believe it. It seems so absurd. At any rate, tell us, mademoiselle. It is this. Monsieur Giraud sent for me, as an afterthought, to see if I could identify the man in there. She signed with her head towards the shed. I could not. At least I could not at the moment, but since I have been thinking. Well? It seems so queer, and yet I am almost sure. I will tell you. On the morning of the day Monsieur Renaud was murdered, I was walking in the garden here, when I heard a sound of men's voices quarrelling. I pushed aside the bushes and looked through. One of the men was Monsieur Renaud, and the other was a tramp, a dreadful-looking creature, in filthy rags. He was alternately whining and threatening. I gathered he was asking for money, but at that moment Maman called me from the house, and I had to go. That is all. Only... I am almost sure that the tramp and the dead man in the shed are one and the same. Poirot uttered an exclamation. But why did you not say so at the time, mademoiselle? Because at first it only struck me that the face was vaguely familiar in some way. The man was differently dressed, and apparently belonged to a superior station in life. But tell me, Monsieur Poirot, is it not possible that this tramp might have attacked and killed Monsieur Renaud, and taken his clothes and money? It is an idea, mademoiselle, said Poirot slowly. It leaves a lot unexplained, but it is certainly an idea. I will think of it. A voice called from the house. Maman, whispered Marta, I must go. And she slipped away through the trees. Come, said Poirot and taking my arm, turned in the direction of the villa. "'What do you really think?' I asked, in some curiosity. "'Was that story true, or did the girl make it up in order to divert suspicion from her lover?' "'It is a curious tale,' said Poirot. "'But I believe it to be the absolute truth.' Unwittingly, Mademoiselle Marta told us the truth on another point, and incidentally gave Jacques Renaud the lie.' Did you notice his hesitation when I asked him if he saw Martha Dubray on the night of the crime? He paused, and then said yes. I suspected that he was lying. It was necessary for me to see Mademoiselle Martha before he could put her on her guard. Three little words gave me the information I wanted. When I asked her if she knew that Jacques Renaud was here that night, she answered, he told me. Now, Hastings, what was Jacques Renaud doing here on that eventful evening? If he did not see Mademoiselle Marta, whom did he see? Surely, Poirot, I cried aghast, you cannot believe that a boy like that would murder his own father? Mon ami, said Poirot, 
you continue to be of a sentimentality unbelievable. I have seen mothers who murdered their little children for the sake of the insurance money. After that, one can believe anything. And the motive? Money, of course. Remember that Jacques Renault thought he would come into half his father's fortune at the latter's death. But the tramp, where does he come in? Poirot shrugged his shoulders. Giraud would say that he was an accomplice, an apache who helped young Renault to commit the crime and who was conveniently put out of the way afterwards. But the hair round the dagger, the woman's hair. Ah, said Poirot, smiling broadly. That is the cream of Giraud's little jest. According to him, it is not the woman's hair at all. Remember that the youths of today wear their hair brushed straight back from the forehead with pomade or hair wash to make it lie flat. Consequently, some of the hairs are of considerable length. And do you believe that too? No, said Poirot with a curious smile. For I know it to be the hair of a woman. And more, which woman? Madame de Bray, I announced positively. Perhaps, said Poirot, regarding me quizzically. But I refused to allow myself to get annoyed. What are we going to do now? I asked, as we entered the hall of the Villa Genevieve. I wish to make a search amongst the effects of Monsieur Jacques Renaud. That is why I had to get him out of the way for a few hours. But will not Giraud have searched already? I asked doubtfully. Of course. He builds a case as a beaver builds a dam, with a fatiguing industry. But he will not have looked for the things that I am seeking. In all probability, he would not have seen their importance if they stared him in the face. Let us begin. Neatly and methodically, Poirot opened each drawer in turn, examined the contents, and returned them exactly to their places. It was a singularly dull and uninteresting proceeding. Poirot waded on through collars, pajamas, and socks. A purring noise outside drew me to the window. Instantly I became galvanized into life. Poirot, I cried. A car has just driven up. Giraud is in it, and Jacques Renault, and two gendarmes. Sacre tonnerre, growled Poirot. That animal of a Giraud. Could he not wait? I shall not be able to replace the things in this last drawer with the proper method. Let us be quick. Unceremoniously, he tumbled out the things on the floor, mostly ties and handkerchiefs. Suddenly, with a cry of triumph, Poirot pounced on something, a small square cardboard, evidently a photograph. Thrusting it into his pocket, he returned the things pell-mell to the drawer, and seizing me by the arm, dragged me out of the room and down the stairs. In the hall stood Giraud. "'contemplating his prisoner. "'Good afternoon, Monsieur Giraud,' said Poirot. "'What have we here?' "'Giraud nodded his head toward Jack. "'He was trying to make a getaway, but I was too sharp for him. "'He is under arrest for the murder of his father, Monsieur Paul Renault.' "'Poirot wheeled to confront the boy, who leaned limply against the door, "'his face ashy pale. "'What do you say to that, Genome? Jacques Renault stared at him stonily. Nothing, he said.
Chapter 19 I Use My Grey Cells I was dumbfounded. Up to the last, I had not been able to bring myself to believe Jack Renault guilty. I had expected a ringing proclamation of his innocence when Poirot challenged him. But now, watching him as he stood, white and limp against the wall, and hearing the damning admission fall from his lips, I doubted no longer. But Poirot had turned to Giraud. What are your grounds for arresting him? Do you expect me to give them to you? As a matter of courtesy, yes. Giraud looked at him doubtfully. He was torn between a desire to refuse rudely and the pleasure of triumphing over his adversary. You think I have made a mistake, I suppose, he sneered. It would not surprise me, replied Poirot, with a sousson of malice. Giraud's face took on a deeper tinge of red. Eh bien, come in here. You shall judge for yourself. He flung open the door of the salon, and we passed in leaving Jack Renault in the care of the two other men. "'Now, Monsieur Poirot,' said Giraud, laying his hat on the table, and speaking with the utmost sarcasm, "'I will treat you to a little lecture on detective work. I will show you how we moderns work.' "'Bien,' said Poirot, composing himself to listen. "'I will show you how admirably the old guard can listen.' and he leaned back and closed his eyes, opening them for a moment to remark, Do not fear that I shall sleep. I will attend most carefully. Of course, began Giraud. I soon saw through all that Chilean tomfoolery. Two men were at it, but they were not mysterious foreigners. All that was a blind. Very creditable so far, my dear Giraud, murmured Poirot. "'especially after that clever trick of theirs with the match and cigarette-end. "'Giraud glared, but continued. "'A man must have been connected with the case in order to dig the grave. "'There is no man who actually benefits by the crime, "'but there was a man who thought he would benefit. "'I heard of Jack Renault's quarrel with his father, "'and of the threats that he had used. "'The motive was established. "'Now as to the means—' Jacques Renault was in Merlonville that night. He concealed the fact, which turned suspicion into certainty. Then we found a second victim, stabbed with the same dagger. We know when that dagger was stolen. Captain Hastings here can fix the time. Jacques Renault, arriving from Cherbourg, was the only person who could have taken it. I have accounted for all the other members of the household. Poirot interrupted. "'You are wrong. There is one other person who could have taken the dagger. "'You refer to Monsieur Stoner? "'He arrived at the front door in an automobile, which had brought him straight from Calais. "'Ah, believe me, I have looked into everything. "'Monsieur Jacques Renault arrived by train. "'An hour elapsed between his arrival and the moment he presented himself at the house. "'Without doubt he saw Captain Hastings and his companion leave the shed, "'slipped in himself and took the dagger.' "'stabbed his accomplice in the shed, who was already dead.' "'Giraud shrugged his shoulders. "'Possibly he did not observe that. "'He may have judged him to be sleeping. "'Without doubt they had a rendezvous. "'In any case, he knew this apparent second murder "'would greatly complicate the case. "'It did. 
But it could not deceive Monsieur Giraud, murmured Poirot. You mock yourself at me, but I will give you one last irrefutable proof. Madame Renault's story was false, a fabrication from beginning to end. We believe Madame Renault to have loved her husband, yet she lied to shield his murderer. For whom will a woman lie? Sometimes for herself, usually for the man she loves, always for her children. That is the last, the irrefutable proof. You cannot get round it. Giraud paused, flushed and triumphant. Poirot regarded him steadily. That is my case, said Giraud. What have you to say to it? Only that there is one thing you have failed to take into account. What is that? Jacques Renault was presumably acquainted with the planning out of the golf course. He knew that the body would be discovered almost at once, when they started to dig the bunker. Giraud laughed out loud. But it is idiotic what you say there. He wanted the body to be found. Until it was found, he could not presume death, and would have been unable to enter into his inheritance. I saw a quick flash of green in Poirot's eyes as he rose to his feet. Then why bury it? he asked softly. Reflect, Giraud. Since it was to Jacques Renault's advantage that the body should be found without delay, why dig a grave at all? Giraud did not reply. The question found him unprepared. He shrugged his shoulders as though to intimate that it was of no importance. Poirot moved towards the door. I followed him. There is one more thing that you have failed to take into account, he said over his shoulder. What is that? That piece of lead piping, said Poirot, and left the room. Jack Renault still stood in the hall with a white, dumb face. But as we came out of the salon, he looked up sharply. At the same moment, there was the sound of a footfall on the staircase. Mrs. Renault was descending it. At the sight of her son, Standing between the two myrmidons of the law, she stopped as though petrified. Jack, she faltered. Jack, what is this? He looked up at her, his face set. They have arrested me, mother. What? She uttered a piercing cry, and before anyone could get to her, swayed and fell heavily. We both ran to her and lifted her up. In a minute, Poirot stood up again. She has cut her head badly on the corner of the stairs. I fancy there is a slight concussion also. If Giraud wants a statement from her, he will have to wait. She will probably be unconscious for at least a week. Denise and Francoise had run to their mistress, and leaving her in their charge, Poirot left the house. He walked with his head bent down, frowning thoughtfully at the ground. For some time I did not speak. But at last I ventured to put a question to him. Do you believe, then, in spite of all appearances to the contrary, that Jacques Renault may not be guilty? Poirot did not answer at once. But after a long wait, he said gravely, I do not know, Hastings. There is just a chance of it. Of course, Giraud is all wrong. Wrong from beginning to end. If Jacques Renault is guilty... 
It is in spite of Giraud's arguments, not because of them. And the gravest indictment against him is known only to me. What is that? I asked, impressed. If you would use your grey cells and see the whole case clearly as I do, you too would perceive it, my friend. This was what I called one of Poirot's irritating answers. He went on without waiting for me to speak. Let us walk this way to the sea. We will sit on that little mound there, overlooking the beach, and review the case. You shall know all that I know, but I would prefer that you should come to the truth by your own efforts, not by my leading you by the hand. We established ourselves on the grassy knoll, as Poirot had suggested, looking out to the sea. From farther along the sand the cries of the bathers reached us faintly. The sea was of the palest blue, and the halcyon calm reminded me of the day we had arrived at Merlonville, my own good spirits, and Poirot's suggestion that I was fay. What a long time seemed to have elapsed since then, and in reality it was only three days. Think, my friend, said Poirot's voice encouragingly. Arrange your ideas, be methodical, be orderly. There is the secret of success. I endeavoured to obey him, casting my mind back over all the details of the case, and reluctantly it seemed to me that the only clear and possible solution was that of Giraud, which Poirot despised. I reflected anew. If there was daylight anywhere, it was in the direction of Madame de Bray. Giraud was ignorant of her connection with the Baraldi case. Poirot had declared the Baraldi case to be all-important. It was there I must seek. I was on the right track now, and suddenly I started as an idea of bewildering luminosity shot into my brain. Trembling, I built up my hypothesis. You have a little idea, I see, mon ami. Capital. We progress. I sat up and lit a pipe. Poirot, I said, it seems to me we have been strangely remiss. I say we, although I dare say I would be nearer the mark. But you must pay the penalty of your determined secrecy. So I say again, we have been strangely remiss. There is someone we have forgotten. And who is that? inquired Poirot, with twinkling eyes. Georges Cornell. Chapter 20 An Amazing Statement The next moment Poirot embraced me warmly. Enfin! You have arrived, and all by yourself. It is superb! Continue your reasoning. You are right. Decidedly, we have done wrong to forget Georges Cornell. I was so flattered by the little man's approval that I could hardly continue. But at last I collected my thoughts and went on. Georges Corneau disappeared twenty years ago, but we have no reason to believe that he is dead. Enquinement, agreed Poirot. Proceed. Therefore we will assume that he is alive. Exactly. Or that he was alive until recently. De mieux en mieux. We will presume, I continued, my enthusiasm rising, that he has fallen on evil days. He has become a criminal, an apache, a tramp, a what you will. 
he chances to come to Merlonville. There he finds the woman he has never ceased to love. Ah-ah, the sentimentality, warned Poirot. Where one hates, one also loves, I quoted or misquoted. At any rate, he finds her there, living under an assumed name. But she has a new lover, the Englishman Renault. Georges Corneau, the memory of old wrongs rising in him, quarrels with this Renault. He lies in wait for him as he comes to visit his mistress, and stabs him in the back. Then, terrified at what he has done, he starts to dig a grave. I imagine it likely that Madame de Bray comes out to look for her lover. She and Corneau have a terrible scene. He drags her into the shed, and there suddenly falls down in an epileptic fit. Now supposing Jack Renault to appear, Madame de Bray tells him all, points out to him the dreadful consequences to her daughter if this scandal of the past is revived. His father's murderer is dead. Let them do their best to hush it up. Jack Renault consents, goes to the house and has an interview with his mother, winning her over to his point of view. Primed with a story that Madame de Bray has suggested to him, she permits herself to be gagged and bound. There, Poirot, what do you think of that? I leaned back, flushed with the pride of successful reconstruction. Poirot looked at me thoughtfully. I think that you should write for the cinema, mon ami, he remarked at last. You mean, it would make a good film, the story that you have recounted to me there, but it bears no sort of resemblance to everyday life. I admit that I haven't gone into all the details, but— "'You have gone further. You have ignored them magnificently. "'What about the way the two men were dressed? "'Do you suggest that after stabbing his victim, "'Connor removed his suit of clothes, "'donned it himself and replaced the dagger?' "'I don't see that that matters,' I objected rather huffily. "'He may have obtained clothes and money from Madame de Bray "'by threats earlier in the day.' "'By threats, eh? "'You seriously advance that supposition?' "'Certainly.' He could have threatened to reveal her identity to the Renaults, which would probably have put an end to all hopes of her daughter's marriage. You are wrong, Hastings. He could not blackmail her, for she had the whip hand. Georges Cronau, remember, is still wanted for murder. A word from her, and he is in danger of the guillotine. I was forced rather reluctantly to admit the truth of this. Your theory, I remarked acidly, is doubtless correct as to all the details. My theory is the truth, said Poirot quietly, and the truth is necessarily correct. In your theory you made a fundamental error. You permitted your imagination to lead you astray with midnight assignations and passionate love scenes. But in investigating crime, we must take our stand upon the commonplace. Shall I demonstrate my methods to you? Oh, by all means, let us have a demonstration. Perrault sat very upright and began, wagging his forefinger emphatically to emphasize his points. I will start as you started from the basic fact of Georges Cronau. Now, the story told by Madame Beroldi in court as to the Russians was admittedly a fabrication. If she was innocent of connivance in the crime— it was concocted by her, and by her only, as she stated. If, on the other hand, she was not innocent, 
It might have been invented by either her or Georges Cornard. Now, in this case we are investigating, we meet the same tale. As I pointed out to you, the facts render it very unlikely that Madame Dubray inspired it. So we turn to the hypothesis that the story had its origin in the brain of Georges Cornard. Very good. Georges Cornard, therefore, planned the crime with Madame Renault as his accomplice. She is in the limelight, and behind her is a shadowy figure whose alias is unknown to us. Now let us go carefully over the Renault case from the beginning, setting down each significant point in its chronological order. You have a notebook and pencil? Good. Now what is the earliest point to note down? The letter to you? That was the first we knew of it. But it is not the proper beginning of the case. The first point of any significance, I should say, is the change that came over Monsieur Renault shortly after arriving in Merlonville, and which is attested to by several witnesses. We have also to consider his friendship with Madame de Bray, and the large sums of money paid over to her. From thence, we can come directly to the 23rd of May. Perrault paused, cleared his throat, and signed to me to write. 23rd May. Monsieur Renault quarrels with his son over latter's wish to marry Martha Dubray. Son leaves for Paris. 24th May. Monsieur Renault alters his will, leaving entire control of his fortune in his wife's hands. 7th June. Quarrel with Tramp in Garden, witnessed by Martha Dubray. Letter written to Monsieur Hercule Poirot, imploring assistance. Telegram sent to Jacques Renault, bidding him proceed by the Anzora to Buenos Aires. Chauffeur Masters sent off on a holiday. Visit of a lady that evening. As he is seeing her out, his words are, Yes, yes, but for God's sake, go now. Perrault paused. There, Hastings, take each of these facts one by one. Consider them carefully by themselves and in relation to the whole, and see if you do not get new light on the matter. I endeavoured conscientiously to do as he had said. After a moment or two, I said rather doubtfully, As to the first points, the question seems to be whether we adopt the theory of blackmail or of an infatuation for this woman. Blackmail, decidedly. You heard what Stoner said as to his character and habits. Mrs. Renault did not confirm his view, I argued. We have already seen that Madame Renault's testimony cannot be relied upon in any way. We must trust to Stoner on that point. Still, if Renault had an affair with a woman called Bella, there seems no inherent improbability in his having another with Madame de Bray. None whatever, I grant you, Hastings. But did he? The letter, Poirot. You forget the letter. No, I do not forget. But what makes you think that letter was written to Monsieur Renaud? Why, it was found in his pocket, and... and... And that is all, cut in Poirot. There is no mention of any name to show whom the letter was addressed. We assumed it was to the dead man because it was in the pocket of his overcoat. Now, mon ami, 
Something about that overcoat struck me as unusual. I measured it and made the remark that he wore his overcoat very long. That remark should have given you to think. I thought you were just saying it for the sake of saying something, I confessed. Ah, Calide. Later you observed me measuring the overcoat of Monsieur Jacques Renault. Eh bien, Monsieur Jacques Renault wears his overcoat very short. Put those two facts together with a third, namely that Monsieur Jacques Renault flung out of the house in a hurry on his departure for Paris, and tell me what you make of it. I see, I said slowly, as the meaning of Poirot's remarks bore in upon me. That letter was written to Jack Renault, not to his father. He caught up the wrong overcoat in his haste and agitation. Poirot nodded. Precisement. We can return to this point later. For the moment, let us content ourselves with accepting the letter as having nothing to do with Monsieur Renault Père, and pass to the next chronological event. May 23rd, I read, Monsieur Renault quarrels with his son over latter's wish to marry Marta Dubray. Son leaves for Paris. I don't see anything much to remark upon there, and the altering of the will the following day seems straightforward enough. It was the direct result of the quarrel. We agree, mon ami, at least as to the cause. But what exact motive underlay this procedure of Monsieur Renault's? I opened my eyes in surprise. Anger against his son, of course. Yet he wrote him affectionate letters to Paris? So Jacques Renault says, but he cannot produce them. Well, let us pass from that. Now we come to the day of the tragedy. You have placed events of the morning in a certain order. Have you any justification for that? I have ascertained that the letter to me was posted at the same time as the telegram was dispatched. Masters was informed he could take a holiday shortly afterwards. In my opinion, the quarrel with the tramp took place anterior to these happenings. I do not see that you can fix that definitely, unless you question Mademoiselle Dubray again. There is no need. I am sure of it. And if you do not see that, then you see nothing, Hastings. I looked at him for a moment. Of course, I am an idiot. If the tramp was Georges Corneau, it was after the stormy interview with him that Mr. Renault apprehended danger. He sent away the chauffeur Masters, whom he suspected of being in the other's pay. He wired to his son and sent for you. A faint smile crossed Poirot's lips. You do not think it strange that he should use exactly the same expressions in his letter as Madame Renault used later in her story? If the mention of Santiago was a blind, why should Renault speak of it, and, what is more, send his son there? It is puzzling, I admit, but perhaps we shall find some explanation later. We come now to the evening, and the visit of the mysterious lady. I confess that that fairly baffles me, unless it was Madame de Bray, as Francoise all along maintained. Poirot shook his head. My friend, my friend, where are your wits wandering? Remember the fragment of check, and the fact that the name Bella Duvine was faintly familiar to Stoner, and I think we may take it for granted that Bella Duvine is the full name of Jack's unknown correspondent, 
and that it was she who came to the Villa Genevieve that night. Whether she intended to see Jack, or whether she meant all along to appeal to his father, we cannot be certain. But I think we may assume that this is what occurred. She produced her claim upon Jack, probably showed letters that he had written her, and the older man tried to buy her off by writing a check. This she indignantly tore up. The terms of her letter are those of a woman genuinely in love, and she would probably deeply resent being offered money. In the end, he got rid of her, and here the words that he used are significant. Yes, yes, but for God's sake, go now, I repeated. They seemed to me a little vehement, perhaps, that is all. That is enough. He was desperately anxious for the girl to go. Why? Not only because the interview was unpleasant, no. It was the time that was slipping by, and for some reason, time was precious. Why should it be? I asked, bewildered. That is what we ask ourselves. Why should it be? But later, we have the incident of the wristwatch, which again shows us that time plays a very important part in the crime. We are now fast approaching the actual drama. It is half past ten when Bella Duvine leaves, and by the evidence of the wristwatch, we know that the crime was committed, or at any rate, that it was staged, before twelve o'clock. We have reviewed all the events anterior to the murder. There remains only one unplaced. By the doctor's evidence, the tramp, when found, had been dead at least forty-eight hours, with a possible margin of twenty-four hours more. Now, with no other facts to help me than those we have discussed, I place the death as having occurred on the morning of June 7th. I stared at him, stupefied. But how? Why? How can you possibly know? Because only in that way can the sequence of events be logically explained. Mon ami, I have taken you step by step along the way. Do you not now see what is so glaringly plain? My dear Poirot, I can't see anything glaring about it. I did think I was beginning to see my way before, but I'm now hopelessly fogged. Poirot looked at me sadly and shook his head. Mon Dieu! But it is triste, a good intelligence, and so deplorably lacking in method. There is an exercise most excellent for the development of the little grey cells. I will impart it to you. For heaven's sake, not now. You really are the most irritating of fellows, Poirot. For goodness sake, get on and tell me who killed Monsieur Renault. That is just what I am not sure of as of yet. But you said it was glaringly clear. We talk at cross-purposes, my friend. Remember, it is two crimes we are investigating, for which, as I pointed out to you, we have the necessary two bodies. There, there. Never was impassioné pas. I explain all. To begin with, we apply our psychology. We find three points at which Monsieur Renault displays a distinct change of view and action. Three psychological points, therefore. The first occurs immediately after arriving in Merlonville. The second, after quarrelling with his son on a certain subject. The third, on the morning of June 7th. Now, for the three causes. We can attribute number one to meeting Madame de Bray. Number two, 
is indirectly connected with her since it concerns a marriage between Monsieur Renault's son and her daughter. But the cause of number three is hidden from us. We have to deduce it. Now, mon ami, let me ask you a question. Who do we believe to have planned this crime? Georges Connell, I said doubtfully, eyeing Poirot warily. Exactly. Now Giraud laid it down as an axiom that a woman lies to save herself, the man she loves, and her child. Since we are satisfied that was Georges Carnot who dictated the lie to her, and as Georges Carnot is not Jacques Renault, follows that the third case is put out of court. And still attributing the crime to Georges Carnot, the first is equally so. So, we are forced to the second, that Madame Renault lied for the sake of the man she loved, or, in other words, for the sake of Georges Cornot. You agree to that? Yes, I admitted. It seems logical enough. Bien. Madame Renault loves Georges Cornot. Who, then, is Georges Cornot? The tramp. Have we any evidence to show that Madame Renault loved the tramp? No, but... Very well, then. Do not cling to theories where facts no longer support them. Ask yourself instead who Madame Renault did love. I shook my head, perplexed. May we, you know perfectly. Who did Madame Renault love so dearly that when she saw his dead body she fell down in a swoon? I stared, dumbfounded. Her husband? I gasped. Poirot nodded. Her husband. Or Georges Cornot, whichever you like to call him. I rallied myself. But it's impossible. How impossible? Did we not agree just now that Madame de Bray was in a position to blackmail Georges Connor? Yes, but... And did she not very effectively blackmail Monsieur Renault? That may be true enough, but... And is it not a fact that we know nothing of Monsieur Renault's youth and upbringing? That he springs suddenly into existence as a French-Canadian exactly twenty-two years ago? All that is so. I said more firmly. But you seem to me to be overlooking one salient point. What is it, my friend? Why, we have admitted George Canot planned the crime. That brings us to the ridiculous statement that he planned his own murder. Eh bien, mon ami, said Poirot placidly, that is just what he did do. <laughs> This is B.J. Harrison. I hope you have enjoyed this unabridged production of The Murder on the Links, Part 5 of 7, by Agatha Christie. If you've enjoyed this book, please become a supporting member of the Classic Tales at classictalesaudiobooks.com. You'll find many ways of supporting us, starting at only $5 a month. Each donation comes with a monthly thank you code for expanding your classic audiobook library. Thank you for joining me today and allowing classic literature to awaken your better self. Please join me every week and we'll rediscover the greatest stories ever put to paper. Yellow, blue, and red, yes, now I think I'll leave to you what to give the rest. 
choose for me, dear Santa Claus. You will know the best. Oh, yes, you will. 